0: Welcome to Bone to Pick, the official podcast of Hip Bone Music and Michael Davis. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash hipbone music or find us on Twitter at Hip Music. Bone to Pick features interviews with legends of the musical field conducted by the Hip Bone himself, Mr. Michael Davis.
1: Welcome to Bone to Pick, Hip Bone Music's Artist of the Month interview series. I am extremely excited to uh, introduce this month's artist, the great Gene Picorni. Um, Gene is one of my all-time favorite tubists, uh, actually one of my favorite instrumentalists uh, of any instrument. And um, Gene has been a member of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra for 23 years. He has performed worldwide with various orchestras. He's released three solo CDs. Uh, A great teacher. Uh, He's pretty much done it all and he's done it with uh, class and elegance every step of the way. We are here today in um, Midtown Manhattan uh, just down the street from Carnegie Hall where Gene will be performing with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra this weekend and we are just absolutely delighted that uh, he was willing to spend some time with us here this afternoon and we can learn more about his amazing career and a great life that he's led. Uh, Gene thanks so much for being with us today.
2: Pleasure to be here Mike.
1: All right great stuff. Um, Gene you are a proud native of Southern California. I know you uh, attended the University of Redlands and then got your degree from uh, University of Southern California. Um, I was wondering if you could maybe just share some of your thoughts about that time of your life and also maybe touch on, uh, I know Tommy Johnson, the great Tommy Johnson, was uh, an important teacher in your development. Maybe just share some of, some of your thoughts about Tommy.
2: Sure. Uh, well, I grew up in Southern California. I was uh, raised in a trailer park. My folks owned a trailer park. Uh, in a little town called Downey, which was about a mile away from where they built the Apollo spacecraft that first went to the moon in 1969. Mm. Um, and uh, I started off on trumpet and eventually went to saxophone and then clarinet and finally took up the tuba when I was in, uh, when I was in high school. And it just so happened that uh, there was a former member of my high school from 10 years before who I got to know who was a choir director at this local Moravian church. His name was Jeff Reynolds, and he uh, became the bass trombone player in the Los Angeles Philharmonic. There was a brass quintet that got put together at this church, and all of a sudden I started to really get into the tuba, and Jeff was a big influence, uh, and I took some lessons from him, and uh, he was just a great, uh, a great hero to me mm-hmm. when, I was, when I was growing up. And uh, and having those kind of those Southern California roots and and seeing the type of lifestyle that uh, Jeff had uh, playing in the Los Angeles Philharmonic, it, I just kind of got in my mind. I, I want to do that when I grow up. So I just kept on pursuing that that dream. When I went off to college at the University of Redlands for two years and had some very good um, music theory teachers there. Uh, and music history teachers and uh, and finally I got hooked up with Tommy Johnson uh, who convinced me that I should uh, go to USC where I could more regularly study with him and uh, see him every week mm-hmm. uh, and when I went to University of Southern California by golly I did manage to, and there was a lot of competition he had a tremendous studio and he was uh, he was a gentle warrior who kept me Going and he, he was he would he would always push to try to get things at the right rhythm, the right time, the right sound. And when you have the greatest tuba sound in the world happening three feet from your head, you know when he's when he's when he's playing for you, you couldn't help but just be inspired by that, by mm-hmm. that type of uh, by that type of energy and uh, that type of inspiration. And also along those lines, uh, uh, Tommy Johnson uh, also recommended that I take some lessons with Roger Bobo, who played the tuba in the Los Angeles Philharmonic. And Roger, of course, had many solo recordings out. In fact, many people in the Los Angeles Philharmonic, who I listen to regularly, had solo albums out. Tom Stevens, Miles Anderson at the time. Mm Mario Guarneri, the Los Angeles Brass Quintet, the Los Angeles Brass Society, there was this lots of energy mm-hmm. when we're talking about the early 70s uh, and uh, and this was something that was really inspiring and and to have kind of Tommy Johnson being my underpinning as I moved along was a real help.
1: Yeah, oh, that's great, great uh, great information. I forgot that, that your association with Jeff Reynolds who I know has been a, a very positive influence on on many low brass individuals so it's uh, Great to hear that he had an impact on you as well. Um, I know your first major professional job was with the uh, Israel Philharmonic, and then um, from there you went to the Utah Utah Symphony. Um, Can you talk about maybe just a little bit how how it was winning those first couple of auditions and maybe what it was like being in those orchestras and how that kind of shaped where you were gonna go eventually with your career?
2: Sure. Um, My first job was with the Israel Philharmonic, and this was in 1975. I was a senior in college at the time and um, um, basically Roger Bobo arranged this audition with Zubin Mehta along with having some other local players in the Los Angeles area, about four of us. And uh, we played this audition for Mehta and then he was uh, supposedly going to be hearing some players in Canada in the next couple weeks and it was just something to do to get out of conducting class. Uh, for one lazy Friday morning uh, in in May, and uh, several weeks later, all of a sudden, I got a call uh, from Roger Bobo saying, "Call Zubin Mehta at this number," and it was a long distance number in Italy or somewhere, and uh, he wanted to engage me as a tuba player for the uh, Israel Philharmonic. So, so that was that was that audition. Um, my audition for uh, the Utah Symphony was uh, a little more uh, dire circumstances. Um, the tuba player at the time, Charlie Eckenrode, died suddenly, and they mm. needed somebody very quickly. Mm. And so I got a call on a Friday, and they said just be out here by Monday. So packed my bags and, and went out. So they, there, that wasn't even an audition. <laughs> um, the first real audition, real meaning advertised and everybody coming in and everybody kind of that happened in St. Louis, and that's a that, that was a real that, that was a real audition where I kind of where I knew that I probably had something a little more special than mm-hmm. I was. But, but my time in Israel was really a very, very influential time because I really learned there what music was all about because I was very into the technical parts of playing while I was in Los Angeles and playing things at the right time and the right, with the right tone, the right intonation and all that. But I never really got into the emotional part of emoting through your instrument. At least I wasn't mature enough to realize that when I was when I was in Los Angeles. So mm-hmm. being in Israel, which is of course a very emotional society, and that is a yeah, very sure. emotional orchestra. You have the whole string section that basically were uprooted uh, from native Russia. Uh, a lot of uh, Jewish violinists who uh, uh, came to Israel and they were all employed pra- practically by the Israel Philharmonic and you had many people uh, still having numbers on their arms mm-hmm. you know from from the holocaust times and and um, you just really got a chance to hear people really emoting through their instruments more so than I'd ever experienced so that was a very influential uh, time uh, of my life and then getting into Utah uh, several years after that uh, after I left Israel was uh, was another time when I just all of a sudden I'm back in the United States and I'd spend hours just going through the jam and peanut butter sections of supermarkets. You know, just <laughs> amazed to see all the stuff that I never saw in Israel because there you just, you know, it was it was it, yeah. was, it was a different time. It sure. was a different yeah. time. So, um, um, I, I appreciated all of those different parts and especially especially kind of learning the kind of the musical ins and outs and listening to a lot of players uh, in the in the Israel Philharmonic. That hmm. was a, that was a big influence.
1: What a great point! I mean, I, I, in, in just looking over your resume and, and thinking about what to ask you, I mean, I, I obviously starting with the Israel, Israel Philharmonic is, a, is an impressive thing, but it's really great that you just shared that with us. The, the fact that the emotional side of it, uh, from that, the, from the coming out in the music, must have been, uh, as you just described, quite amazing. So it's
2: it's really a. Uh, I remember right. one in, time in particular, we were on tour, the Israel Philharmonic was on tour. It was March of 1978. It was my last couple of months in the orchestra. We were in Australia <coughs> and we found out that there had been a terrorist attack uh, in, in, uh, right in, on, the, on, the, on the road between Tel Aviv and Haifa, mm-hmm. uh, where some uh, Arab terrorists had gotten on on the shore and commandeered uh, a, a a bus full of Israeli school kids, shot them shot them up, blew the blew the bus up, uh, and um, the uh, uh, there was also a, a car that was that was hit with some gunfire. As it turned out to be, it was a uh, it was a family of a tuba student of mine who who uh, oh. and his, his little brother was killed. Uh, in fact, uh, I don't know a month or so later. He drove by, and and we had a lesson, and he came out and he showed me the bullet hole in the in the back of the car. But but the point is that we played. I remember very distinctly we played a concert that night in Melbourne, Australia, at the City Hall, and the last piece we did on the concert was Hatikva, which is the Israeli national anthem. And I mean, the whole orchestra was just crying their eyes out mm. and playing in the. And it was just a very emotional time. They, mm. You know, there's a lot of. You know, being jewish isn't just a hobby Mm -hmm. yeah it's 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 really really some yeah it's an amazing
1: amazing story Um, well as a fan of of great orchestral brass performance uh, i i first to be honest i first became aware of your playing when you were uh... with the saint louis symphony uh, we have a, a, a great uh, mutual friend in Jim Martin, who is a, a wonderful bass tromonist and a great guy and a great musician. Fantastic. And, uh, and uh, we could talk about Jim for an hour, but let's... Uh, Actually, we'll that'd just, be more interesting. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to
2: talk about Jim for an he's,
1: hour. Uh, he's quite a guy, and uh, I just spent a week with him at e- teaching up at Eastman this summer. It was really... He's fantastic influence on everybody he comes in contact with. But he he was always telling me, you got to hear this guy, Gene Picorny. It's unbelievable. You never heard the tuba like it. And he was absolutely correct in that. The, not not overselling it in the slightest way. Um, but you you talked a little bit about St. Louis and maybe you could talk a little more about being in that orchestra. I know it's still obviously an incredible orchestra and and one of the best orchestras in the United States, but it seemed like the time you were in, it was kind of an apex for the orchestra. Musically, it was doing some great things, doing a lot of recording. The visibility factor seemed to be very high for that orchestra at the time. Um, But anyway, maybe you could just share some of your thoughts about your time, uh, time in St. Louis.
2: St. Louis was a really great time. I never thought that would work out because I went to take the audition among other reasons, because um, uh, the week before the audition actually took place, I was sitting at the airport waiting to pick somebody up, and I was reading. There was this Time magazine article that came out that was listing the symphony orchestras, the top top-notch ones, and uh, Chicago. They listed number one, which wasn't much of a surprise. But then they listed the number two orchestras being St. Louis, mm. and that kind of caught my eye because mm. the tuba opening was was there at the time, so. And it said they did a lot of Prokofiev, a lot of Shostakovich, Eastern European stuff. And I figured, well, we don't do a lot of Prokofiev in Utah. We didn't <laughs> do much of anything in Utah. I mean, we didn't do a lot. In, mm-hmm. We didn't do that type of music in Utah. So I figured, well, this might be kind of nice. And besides, I like ribs. St. Louis, hey, you're hey, getting pretty look, close to look, Kansas look, City. That's, further. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's in the ground-to-ground <laughs> missile range. Let's let's do it. So went out there, took the audition, and... Um, but to move from the beautiful mountains of, uh, of, of the great Salt Lake Valley and the, and the great uh, topography that's around there and to go into the flatlands of St. Louis was, oh my goodness, what did I get myself into? <laughs> uh, but then I realized, boy, this is pretty nice. And, and the orchestra was very, very good. Yeah. Uh, and the type of chemistry, and I think it's very important for orchestras to have the right chemistry, between Leonard Slacken and the orchestra was just, was really, really good. And the orchestra was putting out some very good recordings at the time. Um, one of the first things that happened when I got there was uh, we recorded the Prokofiev Fifth Symphony. And mm-hmm. we did his, his, his uh, Prokofiev of Cinderella Suite. And, and, uh, and just a lot of recording was done. And that hall is very, very good. Powell Symphony Hall. Mm-hmm. Lots of bottom resonance. Uh, we had a very good, very... Um, Secured uh, brass section. The horns were very good. Susan Slaughter on Principal Trumpa was just a gem, just yeah, unbelievable. A really interdependent type of player who was really team spirited and uh, really was very cohesive in getting a lot of that, uh, a lot of the brass section together. and. Um, um, bass trombone was not was not too loud, so it d- didn't didn't create a bit of a problem regarding balance. I mean, we got a really nice pyramidal sense of balance, which is something that George Zell uh, did a lot with the Cleveland Orchestra and in, in band area. W. Francis Macbeth, he was a real. Uh, a, 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 Advocate of that pyramidal sense of balance mm-hmm. where the tuba the, the bottom voices are the strongest, the most reliable, and you get up to the, the third trombone second trombone slightly less first trombone less, and as you go up as you go higher, you have you don't have to make as many uh, adjustments, but you have to have that pyramid mm-hmm. uh, set up mm-hmm. and, and in that hall it just worked great so that was that was one thing that was just very pivotal about uh, about being in the St. Louis Symphony at the time and I had the opportunity to have some summers off because uh-huh. they were they the summer was kind of optional. They you uh-huh. to do these pops and and so I would head off and do um some music festivals. I go off and do Colorado Music Festival and there uh in Boulder, Colorado was where I cut my teeth on the Mahler symphonies because we didn't do a lot of Mahler in uh in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And um and had a and, and had some good time. So I had a, had a, had some time in the summer to kind of breathe a little bit. And I would come back to St. Louis and and and, and get some good things done. Mm-hmm. It was a it was a great atmosphere there at the time. Management was strong, orchestra was strong, great players, and a and a great town. Great mm-hmm. town. I learned that I didn't need the mountains mm-hmm. to be happy. Mm-hmm. It was a it was a great town to live in.
1: Yeah, that's yeah, a great spirit there. That's great yeah. to
2: hear.
1: Yeah. Before we get to the Chicago Symphony time, um, which is obviously what we'd like to talk a great deal about. Um, I know you went back to Los Angeles for a certain period of time, uh, did some playing with the uh, Los Angeles Philharmonic, and also did some work in the the studios on some motion picture uh, soundtracks. Um, I'm wondering if you can just talk about how that felt to go back, and just experiencing some of your teachers uh, in in that capacity as a professional player.
2: Well, it was great to go back to L.A. because it was, um, because my file cabinet that was full of um, maps of different cities. Uh, it was nice to actually go to a place where I didn't need a map, <laughs> because you know, hey, I know the mountains up are up the up north, and you know that the ocean is out west, and you know you try to try to figure that one out in St. Louis. You know, you can't find any mountains, you can't find an ocean, can't. So, uh, but it was great to go back to L.A. And probably one of the best things about playing in the in the L.A. Philharmonic was being able to sit next to Jeff Reynolds again, mm-hmm. because. Uh, I always respect him as a consummate teacher and um, and and one who was just just such a great person all around, and to be able to sit next to him as often as I did during that one season in l a and to learn from him again mm-hmm. i don 't know if he realized he was teaching me, but just watching him work, watching him listen, mm-hmm. watching him mark his parts and stuff was just a really great education for me and just reminded me of, of how fortunate I was those years earlier when I was working with him. And then um, those couple times I got called in to do uh, uh, some movie soundtracks, The Fugitive. There was one lazy afternoon at Jurassic Park. Uh, I think uh, Tommy Johnson brought me in for that. Uh, and I and I managed to be able to sit next to Tommy Johnson, uh, uh, and uh, and Jim Self and a couple other players, as well. And especially to to work again with Tommy Johnson to sit and and kind of develop more of a friendship uh, mm-hmm. with him. Uh, than it being a student teacher type of thing and be able to hang a little bit in that in that one year. So it was it, it was great fun to be back and to kind of see that scene from a whole different way because I never really played the, I never I never did studio work before, mm-hmm. and to kind of see how that all worked out and to see how that uh, how that is for the, for the for the players out there the and uh, to be able to. Be with players like Malcolm McNabb and Bill Reichenbach and and, and Charlie Loper and and Dick sure. Nash and it was it was it was it was great fun. I was, it was jaw dropping. Yeah, yeah yeah yeah.
1: Well, I'm sure they were more than happy to have you in 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 attendance for those sessions. Um, well, let's let's move on to the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Um, all due respect to the uh, incredible brass sections of the New York, Vienna, Berlin Philharmonic orchestras. Uh, the C.S.O. brass section is kind of universally regarded as the greatest orchestral brass section of all time. And um, I know you replaced an icon in Arnold Jacobs. And uh, I can say in speaking to every tuba player that I know, uh, you have become an icon yourself. So uh, it's a testament to the great work you've done and, and the great respect that you have for the orchestra and what you did following Arnold Jacobs. Um, looking back on your 23 years now in, in the orchestra, can you just share... Gosh, it could be anything and everything you want to say about what, what being in the orchestra is like, what it's meant to you, how, how you feel about it, any, anything that comes to your mind that uh, you associate with, uh, with the great Chicago Symphony Orchestra and being a part of that ensemble.
2: Well, probably the, the best thing that first came out of my mouth after I was told that I won the job uh, was that I was in a small room and Arnold Jacobs was there and Sir George Schulte was there and the personnel manager at the time and maybe some others and Schulte told me that I had the job and I made it very clear that I was not replacing Arnold Jacobs because Arnold Jacobs was not replaceable mm. but I mm. do appreciate the opportunity to be, to, be, to be picked to be a part of this ensemble mm. uh, so because nobody nobody could replace Arnold Jacobs in fact nobody can replace anybody else really but especially him because he was just, he was just bigger than life. So uh, if, I, if I kept on trying to convince myself I was trying to replace him, I'd probably be a nervous wreck. Mm. Um, but I do remember what I was taught those many years ago, uh, studying with Tommy Johnson and Jeff Reynolds, is just to be yourself.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Be as good as you can yourself and that'll probably do what uh, would be enough. So, Okay, so, so Chicago. Um, it was kind of a shock to hear about to hear the energy of that ensemble and hear the energy of the brass section because uh, uh, St. Louis was, uh, which was my previous job, was a it w- was a very very well balanced brass section. Coming into Chicago, uh, the section was well balanced, but everything was just on a higher level. It, it was on a more decibel. Oriented level, and when I first came to a rehearsal and I heard the trumpets warming up, I thought it was a joke. I mean, it was so loud I thought that this was uh, just—they can't possibly be serious. Then I realized, no, this is their volume level. This is what they're setting up. This is a standard. I mean, nobody in the in the string section was flinching. I mean, when, when they were warming up, this is this is just normal. This is just life as we know it, and it took probably. It probably took nine months to a year for me to even catch up with that volume level. It just seemed that uh, I had to just increase everything, mm-hmm. increase my air capacity, increase my my uh, exchange of air, make it a lot easier, make it a lot, uh, make make it a lot more flowing, uh, and to actually have trust in. Um, in the instrument that I was I was actually putting out enough sound because there was just an awful lot of decibels coming out of everything above me and um, so that was that was one of the biggest shocks the second big, biggest shock was just hearing how soft everybody could play Oh, wow. uh, especially the trombone section The trombone section is just unbelievable how soft they can play hmm. uh when when given a particular uh, you know and certain certain people like for example uh jay friedman i mean just the softest most beautiful round upper register that you could imagine i mean it's just it's just silky and uh, um soon after i got there frank chris uh, retired and new trombone player Michael Mulcahy came in about three or four months after I left mm-hmm. and to have this guy around was was, was pretty amazing because he's just an all-around wonderful player, can do anything, his pitch is really good, just makes everything uh, and the first parts and the third parts sound great because he's such a great great second player and that's that, that's just the start of where Mulcahy is. Mm-hmm. And Charlie uh, has a great contrabass register on, on the trombone and Really, really rich sound, and and so I, so so trying to blend with that, and trying to kind of eke out a bit of territory beneath his gorgeous bass trombone sound was a was a big was a big goal of mine because she takes up so much space. So it it, it took a while mm. to to make this uh, change into the in, into the Chicago sound, and uh, fortunately. Um, we did some Bruckner symphonies and some Mahler symphonies. Well, we've done them very often, but especially those were very informative uh, times for me because I had, to, I had to learn to come up to this type of level of playing, which they, which they were used to. And uh, um, eventually, I guess it, it, it happened, but it, 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 I felt like I was pretty much going pedal to the metal to try to keep up, when, when, especially when I first got there.
3: Mm.
1: Boy, that's a great. I I feel like I just got a lesson from you. Like just the fact, the, the way you were listening, and and trying to figure out where your sound is going to fit and how that's going to react to,
2: you know. The, I it's accept. Just, master- it's
1: such a great way to great way to listen and, and a great way to approach uh, any kind of brass playing, but obviously orchestral brass playing. Oh, I accept.
2: I accept Mastercard. <laughs>
1: Unfortunately, mine is tapped out, but we'll talk about that later. Um. Yeah. Leave that in. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's also quite, uh, quite wonderful what you said about Arnold Jacobs, and it must have been a, kind of a great way to, to approach it, you know, because you, are, you, you did follow an icon, and, and like I said, you have created a slot for yourself that is uh, a very formidable position in the world of uh, orchestral brass playing. Um, But what a great way to approach it, is that nobody can be replaced and that you're starting your own time in the orchestra and you obviously approach it musically from uh, a great place in terms of ability, but you also have humility, I can tell the way you, I know the way you play, you approach it with humility and with a lot of grace, so that's a great thing.
2: One of the, I think one of my best lessons that I had when I was first into Chicago was that Leonard Slacken came to guest conduct. Mm. and this is right after I had just left his orchestra Gulp <laughs> and moved on to Chicago. And so I got together with Leonard in, in, in the conductor's room after a rehearsal or two and asked him what he was hearing, especially since he had regularly guest conducted Chicago and we would come to St. Louis and that and he gave me some uh, some very good pointers. He, he said one thing that always has the, the Chicago tradition always Everyone talks about how Herseth would be the leader of how, of how the brass section works. He says, but really, when you, when, when you listen to the old Chicago recordings, it's really what was happening from the bottom. Mm-hmm. It was Jacobs. And a big part of Jacobs playing was the, was the front end, the, mm-hmm. the, the attacks. Not so much the follow through because there wasn't much because he didn't have that much air capacity, but especially the front end attacks. And he said, in order to work in this hall, Orchestra Hall, which is a notoriously dead hall, Mm -hmm. is to really put a lot of punch on the front end. And that kind of will really help out the rest of the ensemble. And I went back on stage and it actually made a lot of sense. And I listened to some of the old recordings of of Chicago with that that view in mind, especially the old... uh, uh, trombone ensemble, trombone tuba ensemble that came out I think in the late 60s early 70s yeah, really. something like that and by golly that's exactly the way Jacobs would play mm-hmm. and, and how the trombone section works. So so, in in some ways the, the brass section was good as an ensemble because you had so many players who were willing to be team players and when you had Herseth on the top pulling Pulling from the top, and you had Jacobs on the bottom, bottom pushing. It just kind of made this whole thing happen. Wow. I, and also that in the particularly happening in Orchestra Hall, in the notoriously dead hall. And then all of a sudden, every they they take all the trucks and move everything down to champaign Urbana, and record a Mahler symphony, and. In Krannert Center, at mm-hmm. the Krannert Center, which was a very, very live hall, and all of a sudden you've just unleashed all the horses because here's this great resonant hall, and 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 you have this th- this orchestra that's been in this dead hall, you know, doing this stuff, and then you let them out into the wild, wide open spaces, and you can get these Mahler recordings that come out, the brass section is just going nuts, and. As one of my friends says in the orchestra, it just rendered the the string section to tape hiss. I mean, there's nothing. It's just it's just unbelievable. And so these great recordings come out out of champaign Urbana from from the Chicago Symphony, and and it all of a sudden it just kind of takes on a life of its own. And then finally. Um, Sir George managed to take the the orchestra to uh, to Europe in the in the in the mid 70s, 1973 or something like that, and all of a sudden the rest of the world started to realize, hey, there's something going on back there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, so,
1: wow, that's uh, great information, Gene. I mean, that's uh, really I, I know that hall in uh, in Champaign Urbana, and uh, absolutely right, is a very uh, very live hall to say the least. But that's a great. Uh, Great information. Um, You know, this kind of leads me nicely into you talking about Leonard Slatkin. Um, I just wanted to play a little name association with you, um, with some conductors that you have worked with uh, over the years. Um, And if you don't mind, maybe just um, we could just talk maybe a couple of thoughts about each one. Um, kind of just quick ideas. And uh, e- each one of these gentlemen are obviously virtuosic musicians. So uh, just kind of interested in your take and, and you uh, have a, a very personal association with all of them. Um, but anyway, let's start off with, uh, with Zubin Mehta.
2: Zubin Mehta, he gave me my first job. How can I fault him? <laughs> no, he, he took a lot of chances. He, I, was green as, I, I was green as grass. There was no reason for him to take me. He could have had any number of more experienced uh, for the Israel Philharmonic, but he he took me on a dare. No, well, it may have been a dare. I mean, I don't know what he does in his private life, but no, he he, he took a chance, and he trusted uh, the people who he, Roger Bobo and Tommy Johnson and Jeff Reynolds and, and his brass associates there in Los Angeles, and uh, he took a chance on me, and I will always, always feel grateful for his, his, his trust in that yeah. in that in that judgment.
1: Yeah, good stuff. Well, he clearly heard something special that's uh, that everybody else has heard now. Um, Sir George Schulte.
2: He gave me my Chicago job. <laughs> well, Sir George was a was a he was a great musician who had very very definitive ideas of how he liked certain things to be done. And the fascinating thing about that was that everyone in the orchestra seemed to know what that was. Even if what his hand directions, his conducting, which some would say is maybe not the maybe a bit spasmodic, uh, something I mean his conducting technique was not the not the most graceful. But in spite of whatever his uh, his baton was doing, people knew what he wanted, what his definitive idea of how he wanted something to be done, it caused people, because of that, um, maybe I hate to say it, questionable baton technique it's nah, it's. I mean it's, it, it worked well enough but it caused people to listen like crazy mm. and I think that was one of the secrets of, of, of Sir George because he, he managed to get the orchestra to listen to one another and to be unified in whatever his ideas in spite of whatever wh- whatever um, um, uh, visual flight Mm -hmm. rules were going on at the Mm -hmm.
1: time yeah interesting very interesting um this next gentleman from an outsider uh looking at it uh i always struck me as just an unbelievably consummate virtuosic musician um daniel barenboim
2: oh yeah well uh uh, maestro barenboim was um a very 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 talented guy who had um uh, had so much natural ability I have no idea how he managed to um, understand just mortals you know, who had to you know, play with music and had... And he just, it was just such a natural thing for him and he was extremely um, inventive with how he would interpret music and we could go from night to night with completely different interpretations of the same piece and I remember one person who actually dared him to change the end of Tchaikovsky Fifth Symphony, which, which ends pa pa bom, 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 and and um, it was I think it was Clevenger who dared him to, to slow the last three notes without a rehearsal, and he and he changed it every single night. There was no point in even having a rehearsal with the guy <laughs> because he would change it. It was almost like he was, he was, he was playing with a cat. Mm. You know, he was just. It wasn't that he was bored, but he was just having fun, and um, so you always had to be on the edge of your seat with with Baron Boyman. In fact, uh, a lot. Of, I remember one time we were coming home from a tour, and the plane was coming into a Airport, and the plane landed, and it was uh, one of our former oboe players in the orchestra who says, "I think on the whole tour that was the only time the orchestra was together when the plane landed." <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's great. Well. <laughs> Quite interesting. Um, well, this next gentleman I had, we've talked about him already a, a little bit, but uh, I had the pleasure of meeting him when I was on a Rolling Stones tour and we were in Tokyo and uh, St. Louis Symphony uh, was in Tokyo and uh, I got to spend a little bit of time with him. But anyway, Leonard Slatkin, be interested in a little more of your thoughts about him. Yeah,
2: well, I was, uh, I was very happy to really win that audition in St. Louis. And uh, Leonard clearly heard some things. Uh, from me that he wanted to take a chance on because uh, there were some other people who were who were playing regularly with him at the time before they managed to pick a permanent uh, a permanent player. So he took a chance on me, and uh, we had we had a good time. He managed to make a good chemistry with the orchestra. He was a great child psychologist. He knew how to get the best things out of different people in the orchestra mm. and. Uh, uh, I think that's one of the great things about uh, the really great conductors. They, they really know how to get the best types of things out of out of certain players, out of certain sections, and Leonard could do that. He really put together um, a lot of great American music. I don't know if any of it will last, but as far as interpretation is concerned, he certainly put together um, um, a, a lot of good things. That chemistry in St. Louis was, was pretty amazing. It, Sometimes it doesn't work, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Slacken coming to Chicago doesn't have the same type of chemistry as Slacken did with St. Louis, just like uh, Esapekka Solon coming to the Chicago Symphony doesn't have the same chemistry as it did when Esapekka Salonin was in LA. It just depends on the different orchestras. But mm. but uh, I, uh, I really liked uh, w- working with Leonard. He was Leonard Slack. He always insisted by calling him by his first name, which mm. was, was a little disconcerting, you know, I mean. <laughs> Conductors aren't even mortal. You don't even see them eat.
1: Yeah, right.
2: You know. (laughs) Um,
1: Well, that's great stuff. Um, And then we'll finish up with uh, the current conductor, the C.S.O. Ricardo Muti.
2: Yeah, he's he's pretty amazing. He's a. I don't think the orchestra ever thought we would have someone as good as that. I know Charlie um, Charlie Vernon was pushing for for uh, for Maestro Muti for a long time, and. I read all the press reports and th- thought some of them to be accurate before he actually came to town. That he was a tyrant, an egomaniac, and all this. I don't know. I never saw any of that mm. since he's come to town. And he's he's always been extremely positive. Occasionally he gets moody, but you know who doesn't? But I tell you, he he he's brought brought this orchestra along in a really really good way, and. Uh, I feel uh, I feel really fortunate to be able to spend spend this, this time with him and to learn a whole nother repertoire because, you know, you can only live so long on goulash, you know, Eastern <laughs> European, Russian stuff, and all of a sudden now go to rehearsal and I'm surprised there aren't more people overweight in the orchestra because, you know, he starts talking and man, you feel, I just feel like having a big plate of spaghetti after every <laughs> rehearsal, after every performance, you know, I just I feel like we're all going to, you know, it's a, have too much macaroni by the end of the season, something. So.
1: I know with, with young people that I come in contact with, it definitely, you know, e- even in this age of technology, uh, there is certainly uh, a, a feeling of playing an instrument and you're in, in your wind creating a an, uh, sound. And I think that that is always going to be special, whether it's, you know, whether it's jazz or classical or whatever it is. And I, and I do think that. It, for for young people, or not any any age, it's not just young people, but for them to have an opportunity to hear an instrument, an acoustic instrument, there's still there's still something magical about that. There always will be, and I think uh, I think that's a great a great answer, you know, and, and, and a great
2: way to approach it. I remember Chuck Dallenbach saying once that he was in the Canadian Brass. They were <clears throat> they have, of course have their uh, they go on their big tours, and they're you know they're you see them photographed by the Great Wall of China and playing for the right, Queen right. of England and all this stuff. Well, part of the time they have to spend in the Canadian brass is actually play for Canadians. <laughs> and so they're out in the Yukon playing in the middle of nowhere, um, and they have this arrangement of the first movement of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. And so they go out there to play in this high school gymnasium, and you have people, you know, bundled up in their in their parkas and everything else listening to this concert. And I guess it occurred to uh, to to Dahlenbach in the middle of this performance that for many of these people this was the first time they were going to hear Beethoven's Fifth Symphony played live even Mm -hmm. if it was a brass quintet. And it wasn't and then all of a sudden he realized right after that it's not only the first time some of them were going to hear it it's the last time. Mm. It's the very last time they're ever going to hear this happen. And so all of a sudden, the sense of mission just went mm. a whole yeah. lot higher. It became a whole lot better reason to go ahead and to really make it special, because this was it. This was the last. This was the last breath of live music they were going to hear. Mm-hmm. This is the last time they were ever going to hear Beethoven for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. And so the, it became a lot more important.
1: Yeah. People. Yeah. Interesting. Um, This is, you know, kind of taking it uh, back into the the playing realm. Um, You know, we've talked a lot about your orchestral career and your orchestral playing. Um, You know, you've had a great solo career as well. You've released three solo CDs. Um, You've soloed with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. You've soloed with other orchestras around the world. Um, And, you know, obviously the tuba is not thought of as a solo instrument so much, although folks like yourself uh, have have helped take the instrument into these uh, new and... uh, Kind of great places. Um, can you just talk a little bit about how different your approach might be when you're playing a solo piece or playing solo with the orchestra than it would be when you're playing in the orchestra itself?
2: I think the playing in the orchestra, uh, the parameters of the act of actually performing, uh, have a um, there's a different set of priorities. First of all, you have to be much more an ensemble player. You have to be more blending with uh, the instruments that you have to be playing around. For you know, you're you're the fourth trombone. You're the second contrabassoon. You're the contrabass clarinet. You're in other words, you're, you're the bottom of the woodwind section. You're the bottom of the of the string section. You're the bottom of the of the brass section. And consequently. Uh, um, you have to be more of an uh, have a little bit more sense of the ensemble playing there uh, That's also one of the reasons why uh, I've been experimenting a lot with double B flat tuba mm. lately because it seems to be more of a better blend with say the bottom of the trombone section Everything's in B flat and everything just kind of sets it up a little bit more so mm-hmm. I, I do spend a little bit more time playing double B flat so <coughs> <coughs> excuse me in the solo stuff, uh, that's a that's where the that's where the parameters disappear mm-hmm. or at least they, they get a whole lot wider mm-hmm. and I try to be try to be a little bit more outrageous in fact a lot more outrageous <laughs> uh, uh, playing a uh, playing a lot with the, the York double C tuba which the orchestra owns and a lot of F tuba playing um, and try to not uh, try to be a lot more expressive, really take rubato to the absolute, absolute end of the earth, try to get into the thin branches like Pavarotti does when he, when he's, when you hear recordings of him singing and it almost sounds like he's ready to break and then he you know rises victorious to the high sea or something but you know it always but it always sounds it never sounds assured Mm -hmm. it never sounds like he's just gonna go ahead and play it and everything is gonna be confident and easy I mean it really sounds like he's stretching and if I could do that on the tuba well then I I, uh, it's uh, that makes it that's what solo playing is all about and um, when I listen to other people play whether they're playing tuba or Particularly if they're playing string instruments or other other instruments, uh, I try to imagine: okay, what would the what, what would the tuba sound like trying to play this piece? Mm-hmm. What would the tuba sound like playing this uh, this uh, bagatelle by Gerald Finzi? What would uh, what would the tuba sound like going for going for the high note in Nessum Dorma* mm-hmm. and by mm-hmm. Puccini? What, what would uh, and um, to try to make that happen is is where I try to push it. In fact. Um, I did the Vaughn Williams uh, concerto last May, May of 2012, just a couple months ago, and I know there were I got a lot of mixed reviews from people who 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 really thought that I was taking things to the nth degree regarding interpretation, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. I uh, I don't mind you know breaking the bounds. If it you know, if it offends people, why hey, fine. Show yeah. me another way. Do it. You know. Uh, I I don't I I don't mind I think it but I think we I think we have to be more expressive in our playing especially especially brass players because you listen to well listen to I think one of the real inspirations for me is Wynton Marcellus when Mm. when the Jazz Lincoln Center group comes Mm. to comes to Chicago the various colors he gets from that trumpet Mm-hmm. And, of course, he's got maybe more parameters uh, to, uh, in, in in playing his jazz stuff and his, his whole variety of mutes that he uses regularly. Yeah. Uh, it, it's just amazing the, the types of sounds that he gets. I mean, it's like Yo-Yo Ma getting all the types of different sounds he gets with, with the cello. And, and, you know, when you play a tuba, hey, sounds like a tuba. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I mean, how different can it be, you know? <coughs> Well,
1: that's 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 a great approach, and I think that's probably why you've had so much success as a soloist, as well as like is is taking chances and pushing the envelope like that. Um, Gene, you know, in addition to everything you've contributed as a player, you've contributed a lot to the brass world as an educator. Um, you and I collaborated on the twenty-minute warm-up routine, which I'm very grateful for, and uh, thanks Go to on. you, it's become uh, uh, gotten some traction in the tuba world and uh, and become. Uh, uh, or had an impact and become a resource for students and teachers. So uh, I greatly appreciate that. Um, more importantly than that, you've, you've started the Picorni Low Brass Seminar, which is uh, a yearly event held at uh, University of Redlands. And uh, I, noticed, I know it's slated for next year, but maybe you could just talk about that a little bit. I know it's focused on orchestral playing for low brass players.
2: Yeah, uh, well, you're not going to get out of it unscathed. The 20-minute <laughs> warm-up... I tell you, it's, it's just a really, really great, great thing that you put together. Mm. You put together. You put together. Wow. And the thing is, I know you would probably say <clears throat> as an educator yourself that there's nothing really phenomenal about it. You know, it's just 15 exercises that seem to catch most everything that you do. <clears throat> the most obvious thing to me <clears throat> is that... Um, if you actually go ahead and you do those exercises every day or nearly every day, your whole playing gets better. And I think that's I, th- I think that's uh, I-, I think that brings I-, I think that's something that just speaks volumes to me, because I have since that time when you when you had me do that, um, uh, I I'm stuck with that and it's been a real boon. It's mm. been a real boon to my playing and. And when we go, when, when this seminar happens at Redlands or when I'm going off to, to other places, I highly recommend it because because if you get, if you manage to get these very simple exercises down in 20 minutes or if you take it through a second time and maybe do a little bit of variations on it and maybe add just a few other uh, things like long tones and some bel-canto exercises, you've got it all figured out. It's a really condensed way of in keeping your your playing going. Plus, you're playing against a soundtrack, which is keeping your rhythm straight, and you're going against some harmonies, which is keeping your ear training going. I mean, it's, it's extremely condensed, and well, bravo. <laughs> I, it's, it's, it, I, I know. It, it's nothing phenomenal. You know, I mean, you just wrote these exercises out, but it works. It works. Thank, and thank you, Gene. Uh, That's
1: very, uh, very kind of you. I, I really appreciate that. Now, it. what was the second part of the question? Uh, well, we are <laughs> talking, talking <laughs> about the, uh, the Picorni uh, Low Brass oh, Seminar at University yes. of Redlands.
2: Yeah. Uh, It's great to go back to to, uh, University of Redlands where I spent my first two years in college, 1971 to 1973. And um, uh, they gave me a very distinctive honor some years ago. Um, uh, They gave me an honorary doctorate, which was pretty amazing. I mean, considering (laughs) my mental capacity. (laughs) So I... So... uh, it actually started off as being a suggestion for my wife, Beth Lodolf, that that because she knows I I I feel some very uh, a very strong uh, I've, I've always wanted to do kind of a band camp because band camp has been something that uh, my parents kind of kept me going when I was in Southern California and I and it's thing, that that thing has kind of lost uh, some interest in the in the last couple of years in a lot of places but I was thinking of doing that and so I spoke with Dr. Andrew Glendinning, there when I was there at the University of Redlands and started to talk about band camp and we started to talk about well maybe something on a slightly higher level and started to talk about maybe just having a tuba, tuba classmate maybe for one week in the summer and it would give me a chance to go back to Southern California and to kind of spread the gospel as it mm-hmm. was for all yeah. the ex- great experiences that I've had and you know the Chicago brass playing ideas which um, don't necessarily get into, get onto the West Coast very often. And so now it's turned into something that uh, has been going on for about five years or so. Um, In 2013, we've got a week-long seminar that's going to start July 8th. Along with tuba, I've got colleagues, uh, Michael Mulcahy from the Chicago Symphony, Mm, who's going to be teaching tenor trombone. Randy Hawes, a monster bass trombone player from the yeah. Detroit Symphony, we ran the
1: Woody Herman's band together. Oh yeah, hundred years oh, ago. Oh sure, so, sure. Yeah. You mentioned yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, But I, I, I echoed that. Randy's an unbelievable player. Yeah, yeah no he's,
2: question. He's he's great. And Doctor and Doctor Andrew Glenn and, uh is just a great scholar, great organizer, uh, um, and is just a genius at putting this stuff together. And he's, he managed to get the Chicago Symphony Low Brass Section to play out. Uh, on the last uh, Chicago Symphony tour to uh, Los Angeles, I should say Southern California, because we didn't play in Los Angeles. Mm. We went out to California, and he managed to get the uh, C.S.O. brass section to play out there at the University of Redlands, which oh, was pretty cool. amazing. Yeah, yeah. Good. So he he could he could make anything happen. And so we go through everything, just you know, orchestral playing, solo playing. Um, 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 Every every one of us p- plays recitals we talk about 20th century music we we have astronomy night you know we were watching mm. the international space station float <laughs> over a couple times a couple c- couple evenings there we talk about guacamole recipes uh... uh... talk about just keeping our heads on straight and 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 keeping and, and moving forward um... but uh... um... i am very honored that they even call it the Picorni seminar i, I kind of Kind of makes me cringe a little bit. I mean, it's a low brass seminar and a uh, Bacardi seminar, so it's you know, it's it's it's.
1: <laughs> well, it sounds like an amazing program. It sounds like uh, anybody who gets to go to that is going to be very fortunate. And uh, I can honestly say I didn't think guacamole recipes was going to come up in this interview today, but I'm glad you were. Uh, I'm glad you brought it up. But uh, use real <laughs> lime juice,
2: real lime juice, not 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 the well, fake stuff.
1: Yeah. Gene, it's been it's been such a great uh, opportunity to talk to you. I just I like to finish up um, most of the interviews with giving each great brass player, an opportunity just to give um, some advice, e- a real short bit of advice to, in your case, maybe you could address um, to a- aspiring orchestral players, and in particular, you know, a super outstanding young tuba player out there who dreams of being the next Gene Picorny. Um, just what advice you might give to those folks.
2: Um, don't forget your mouthpiece. <laughs> um, I would say probably to keep, uh, keep your goals um, kind of well set and to take notes during your lessons. Take notes during your lessons and review them. Um, I took notes during a lot of my lessons that I took with, uh, with Tommy Johnson and Jeff Reynolds and Arnold Jacobs and I would review those and, uh, and I would try to keep those in mind especially when I would go through. Uh, long tones and, and and some other parts of my warm-up exercises. I'd also, especially, uh, I think playing solos is really important. And if you go ahead and you're working on uh, a lot of technical things, I think you should go ahead and Plan at least one solo recital a year just to keep your head moving and thinking about musical lines and musical thoughts and those types of things and, and to not be so stuck in the uh, just doing regimented exercises. Um, the exercises are for the music. In fact, Baron never worked on exercises, he says in his book. He always worked on music. He would learn his technique by by working on Mozart. So. Mm. Not that we can. Mm. Uh, we don't have any Mozart. But uh, <laughs> uh, um, and to, and I think I think one of the advices, uh, some of the advice that I got from Tommy Johnson is work as hard as you can for that for that uh, orchestral tuba position that you want, but always believe that it might not happen because the fickle ways of way, the way auditions work uh, the the, the crisis in the economy at the time go ahead and realize where your passion lies where the thing that really turns you on and do that make sure it's something that you really have a have a passion for and if you don't if you think well maybe I'll just be a music educator uh, and if, I, if I don't win a tuba job if, you, if your heart really isn't into music education stay away from it be inspiring or, or, or don't get into teaching at all um there's there's easier ways to make money mm-hmm. um and uh I'll tell you i was uh I, w- I started the tuba rather late and i wasn't uh, i wasn't the first chair in a lot of the groups that i started off on but i i just kept at it it's 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 a possibility that might actually work so if you it, Keep the dream as long as you can. Keep the dream as long as you can. Um, and um, you're a lot luckier if you have parents that, that support you in your in your dreams and acquiring instruments and going to schools and that. So, if if you weren't if you didn't get that advantage when you were growing up, uh, keep that in mind for your own kids, for your own family when you're when when you're when you're uh, when you're raising them when you're raising them.
1: That's great, great advice, Gene. Really uh, heartfelt too. We appreciate that very much. Okay, just to end on a very light
2: note, I know. Just a second. I want to make sure I didn't miss anything. Beth, did I miss anything? No. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I've, I've, my, my wife is right off camera here. Beth, you should get on camera. No, I don't think so. Yes, I don't she think can. So,
1: but Mike has a very
3: important
2: point. No, 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 no,
1: no. Well. Again, no, no. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you this, Gene, but Beth, feel free to uh, veto this response if it's not appropriate. Gene, I know that you are a huge fan of the Three Stooges. Certainly. Uh I have to, uh, before this interview can end, uh, and I, we won't leave this room until you answer, but I'm sure you will once we put it in that framework. Um, who is your favorite Stooge?
2: You really have to ask. I have
1: to ask. <laughs>
2: it's Curly.
3: I mean, who else? <laughs> Yeah. When yeah. did we get married?
2: We got married on October 22nd, 1993, which was Curly's 90th birthday. Curly's 90th birthday. Now, it, it, that was so, so, that was, it was the only, fortunately, fortunately, sorry, Schulte programmed the creation. This was the only time we could do it, you know, because Haydn fortunately didn't write a tube apart. So we got married on Curly's 90th birthday. And 10 years after that, Curly's 100th, I happened to be playing uh, uh, the United States Embassy. The Chicago Symphony Brass Quintet played a concert at the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo. And, um, oh, um, Howard Baker was yes. the amb- ambassador, and Nancy Katzenbaum is his wife. And so, <laughs> and so we were playing this recital. And I, and I made an announcement saying, well, this, uh, I got up and made an announcement to the a whole assembled crowd, including these papers and then the CSO heavies and the, the management and the, the, the delegates and all this stuff that are assembled there in the, in the main hall. I said, well, this is to commemorate the future. U.S. national holiday of October 22nd because it's going to be, it, it, it's Curly's birthday. You know, Curly Howard's birthday. And I said, there's a reception afterwards, and if you all see any any, any cream pies back there, you all know what to do. And I could see the blood drain out of Nancy Katzenbaum's face. <laughs> so I went there, and I played this Three Stooges theme song, and then we the, the recital continued, and and it was it was uh,
1: Curly's
2: 100th It birthday. was Curly's it's, 100th birthday. I, I, and, I, uh, can,
1: I can see now the, the, the question that's going to come out of the interview. The test question will be Gene Picorni was married on <laughs> which famous stooge's 90th <laughs> birthday? <laughs> well, that way we'll be able to tell that you watched the interview to the end. But, <laughs> that's right. But, uh, yeah. Gene, Gene, this has been so awesome. It's always great to spend time with you, it's always great to be involved with you on any level, musically, personally. Uh, thanks so much for allowing us to come into your life and spend some time while you're here in New York, and uh, we'll look forward to uh, catching you next time down the road. Oh, look forward to it. Thanks, Jim. We'll see you all next time on Bone to Pick. Thanks for being with us
2: today. 20-minute warm-up. Don't forget it.
1: Thank you very much
0: for listening. We hope you enjoyed the interview. Do you want to honor your band director and win some great swag for your band program? please like us on Facebook at Facebook.com and vote for your favorite educator at our Band Director of the Month program. Don't forget to visit www.hipbonemusic.com for more great interviews, information, and for a complete lineup of method books. We're here to help you get better. Thanks for listening.